0: So then I went to a race in Bend, Oregon, and I was skiing along, and I ride up the chairlift, and then I just crush it going down. Cool thing about skiing is that you're in the mountains. It's peaceful, it's serene. All you'd hear is the tower, the, the cable, right? Going over the riblets.
1: The winter, outdoors white snow, and green trees. These kind of spaces are both inspiration and reward for the people who choose to spend their time speeding down the slopes.
0: And I all of a sudden, I saw this black skier, a black racer, come down the ski course. Don't stop, I, need I almost fell off the chairlift because I was trying to turn so fast because I was like, oh, my goodness, there was a black dude <laughs> in the same race stuff. and like. There's a black guy here. What is that? I've never seen one.
1: And while the mountains may dominate everyone's horizon line, access to them hasn't quite been equal. Carving some color into this snowy tableau has been slow, but the change towards inclusion is being led by a select few, athletes who are accustomed to standing out and joining up.
0: Uh, I found him in the day lodge And I, like, it was kind of like a weird movie where everything just stopped when we saw each other in the day lodge. And I was like, huh, there's another one. (laughs) Because I couldn't believe it because I've always been, I mean, I spent almost 15 years as the only black skier I'd ever met. If they should win gold in this event, Vanetta Flowers would become the first African-American man or woman ever to win a Winter Olympic gold medal.
1: No African-American athlete has ever won gold at the Olympic Winter Games. All sorts of history at stake here, Bonnie. From NBC Sports, this is The Podium, a podcast about the 2022 Beijing Winter Olympic Games. As we near February, we'll bring you the stories from snow and from ice that shaped the pursuit of gold. I'm your host, Lauren Shahadi, and over the 12 weeks leading up to the opening ceremony, we'll dive into a facet of these games to discover the people and the places that will define them. According to data from the National Ski Areas Association, of visitors to ski areas in the US during the 2019-2020 season were white. 1.8% were black. Our first guest today is part of the latter group and ended up representing it at the very top of the competitive hill.
0: My name is Andre Horton. I spent uh, six years on the national ski team. I was the first able-bodied Black American to do so. Then I retired, and then I joined the USSA Board of Directors for four years. And now I am an athlete trustee with the U.S. national team at the USSA.
1: Andre, welcome. Thank you so much for adding your perspective to our look into diversity in, in winter sports. Before we get into all of it, tell me about your start in skiing.
0: Yes, um, both my parents were school teachers, so we didn't have a lot of money to even get into alpine skiing. So my mom, who is from Northern Idaho, she's Caucasian, knew how to ski from Sun Valley and living in the Sawtooth Mountains. She taught me how to cross-country ski as a child. And that was an easy thing to do. You can go right across the street and cross-country ski in the Bicentennial Park here in Anchorage, Alaska. I did that until I was maybe a young teen and I started Nordic jumping up at the Carlisle Ski Complexes. Not a lot of people know in the United States, there's not a lot of Nordic jumping facilities. Uh, in the United States. I think there's about six of them total. And I happen to grow up right next to one. <laughs> so I uh, started Nordic jumping about when I was 10 years old. And then I realized that this Nordic jumping uh, complex was right next to an alpine ski area. So I was like, well, this is cool. I don't have to hike anymore if I can go ride a chairlift. So I convinced my parents to get me a season pass and I started alpine skiing.
1: <laughs> Money well spent. When did you notice that you didn't look like the majority of people on the slopes?
0: Anytime I was Nordic jumping or cross-country skiing, I was always the only person of color in any of those events. And I guess I didn't really recognize it until I traveled to the lower 48 to other races as a kid where I was like, wow, I guess I'm the only one. But I never, ever internalized it as a disadvantage or somewhere or something where I felt like I was outside or alone. I was never concerned about having a, a social network or a social environment where I had to have or be with other people the same color. I was just one of those outliers, I guess, where I appreciated the sport so much and I enjoyed it so much that I never let my color be a distraction for my performance or my enjoyment of the sport. I always felt like gravity was my friend and the mountains were there to comfort me and it was all about the clock.
1: It's so well said. You were focused on racing and rightfully so, right? Uh, Gravity might not discriminate, but do you have any examples I don't know, being treated differently as you were climbing the ranks of, of pro skiing, or maybe even even once you got on the national team as the first black person to put on that ski suit?
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> some people's like, hey, did you get that on eBay? Like, where did you get that uniform? That's the, that's, the, that's the new one, man. How did you get the new one like that? And they just didn't know who I was. Uh, as news traveled around within the organization, they're like, oh, Andre Horton's here. He's skiing around in his uniform. <laughs> and the, and the same token too. I would go places skiing, and people didn't know they would. They would. This was the funniest one. I'd get near the chairlift, and they would slow the chairlift down, thinking I didn't know how to get on the chairlift, <laughs> even though I have a special ski team uniform on. Just because, I mean, yeah, people could say that's ignorant, but at the same time, if you're at a ski area, and I'm, it, I, it could be Schweitzer, it could be some place like in Montana, and if you've never seen a black person skiing what are you going to do? You're like, oh, oh, wow, who's this guy? Why, you know? There's an assumption that can be made like, hey, he probably doesn't know how to ski. So they sold their chairlift down. I said, like, hey, <laughs> hey, thanks, man. I'm glad I can get on the chairlift. He's like, all right, cool, man. We're so glad you're here. Have a good ski lift. I'm like, all right, thanks. <laughs> and they'd speed the chairlift back up for me. And I would be with buddies and they're like, did they just sew the lift down for you? I'm like, yeah, they did. <laughs> so I think you got to kind of roll with it a little bit and smile. And then I would see that same lift attendant later on in the day and they'd be like, I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, Nevertheless, there was lots of conversations that would occur on chairlifts just for that very reason.
1: So interesting to hear your perspective and your experiences. Big picture, Andre, in your opinion, why aren't there more minorities in winter sports?
0: Well, there's two things initially. It's the straight economics of winter sports, especially with skiing. Like you require access to high elevations and you require access with a ski pass, right? Then the logistics of getting there. Then the second part is is the geography. Um, I'm an outlier in many ways because I grew up next to a mountain and I grew up half a mile from a ski area and walking distance to a cross-country ski area. So I geographically can fit into the pipeline and demographics of the sport. Holding all things constant though, the winter sports industry In the United States, for instance, has not really done a lot of work to supplement or offset the economic disadvantages of trying to get to the sport. Vail, I think the last time I checked was $80, $90 to ski for the day. And that doesn't even matter if you're a junior or if you're a kid. Like it's just like going to Disneyland. I mean, Disneyland, I think, is cheaper than Vail for the day. So that right there automatically cuts off on a socioeconomic um, yield. Like there's no way there's, there's only certain people that can afford that for the day. And I'm not saying that the demographic of black America doesn't fit in that. There is just other things that they can go that are lower hanging fruit. And I was like, well, if you see a kid and you, st- and they're watching LeBron James, they aspire to do that because they see LeBron James. I would say that uh, if they saw more black Americans skiing, they would probably try skiing because that's what we see. We see it on media. We're like, yeah, hey, look at that. looks like they're having fun. I'm gonna go try that. And you have to understand too, in 2021 there are more middle class and more high-end black americans than any time in our u.s history so it doesn't mean that there's not a socioeconomic class that can't afford it it's just a matter of the snow industry saying hey this is fun this is entertaining this is healthy come try it and that is all done on the advertising and marketing side
1: If marketing is one piece of the puzzle towards getting more minorities into snow sports, then the young man we're about to speak to is the right fit.
2: You drive into every single resort and they always have pictures and banners of, you know, happy family skiing or an athlete that they might admire at the mountain, but you never see any people of color on those banners, welcoming people onto the mountain. I'm Brian Rice. I'm from the U.S. I'm a snowboarder. I'm also the first black athlete to be sponsored by a ski resort on any level.
1: How awesome is that? Huge news, Brian. We just spoke with Andre Horton not too long ago. I mean, this is a really significant development. What does it mean to you? Tell me more.
2: All right. So not many know yet, but I have... Just signed a sponsorship and partnership with Copper Mountain Resort and Woodward Copper, and what that brings for me and my community, also people of color, is you know showing people that snowboarding and winter sports is it doesn't have to be a whitewashed sport. It can just be what it is, and what it is is just a great time snowboarding, fun, and I think that's gonna be beautiful.
1: So well said. Take me back to the beginning. Brian, rewind a little bit. How does your story start in snowboarding?
2: So when I was four years old for Christmas, I had asked for a snowboard. And just to kind of test it out before my parents bought me a real snowboard that would cost hundreds of dollars, they got me like a $25 snowboard from Walmart and it was plastic. I remember the first time I went up a chairlift, I got on by myself and my parents freaked out. And I think after that, my dad decided that I needed somebody to ride with and somebody to hang out with and maybe somebody to help me figure out certain tricks. And I think maybe a month or so after I went up on that chairlift, he went and bought his, his first snowboard as well and started snowboarding at the Bunny Hill. About a week into that, uh, we all agreed that he had made impeccable progress and we were going to go up to the biggest mountain in Michigan, Boyne Mountain. And he did his thing while I did mine. And that's the rest is just kind of history.
1: Yes, you did. Speaking of impeccable progress, your tricks have probably evolved completely since then. What are you throwing down these days that are making resorts like Copper and your other sponsors take notice?
2: Uh, I'll start off with my newest and biggest trick coming straight out of Saus is my back triple cork 1440 and also back triple cork 1620.
1: Start off with a bang. I love it. You know, Marcus Cleveland and I were speaking last week and he explained some of the nuances of these tricks to me. He was with you in preseason training in, in Sasfe, Fee, Switzerland, right? Th- those are the same tricks that won medals in the 2018 Pyeongchang Games.
2: As he gets the triple cork, fourteen forty three three dips in the head, four rotations,
0: and Red just slams it down. Red Gerard just showed up.
1: Are you chasing that kind of level in future games? Uh, My
2: Olympic aspirations are to take it all the way, bring it all the way home. I'm talking gold, silver. I want to medal. I want to be on top of that podium. I want to show the world and prove to myself what I can do, really show them what I can do.
1: And who is them in this case? Do you feel like you're inspiring people of color to try winter sports?
2: Yes, I absolutely think I am mainly just because there is so few of us. But hopefully, you know, the bigger I get, the more people that hear my story, the more people that see what I can do, it will inspire them. And I won't be one of the few Black people on the mountain. I'll be just another Black person on the mountain because hopefully there will be so many.
1: Uh, Brian, when did you notice that there weren't many people who looked like you on the Hill?
2: I would say that, When I first started, I didn't really notice. I was just a kid and I was more worried about not falling, going down the hill or paying attention to where I was going. But as I got older, I realized, and I kind of brought it to attention to myself that I had not seen one or if any people of color on the mountain. I think what brought it to my attention was one of my really good friends. We were doing a border cross race And he came all the way from Wisconsin. And I didn't know him at the time, but uh, he was the only other Black kid on the mountain. And so it was kind of just eye-opening that, you know, the one person of color that I could possibly see kind of just came all the way from Wisconsin or Minnesota or something like that.
1: What's it like when you meet someone who's experiencing this same underrepresentation?
2: It was nice. It was honestly... Just a relief to have somebody else, you know, that looked like me, another person of color out on the mountain, somebody who kind of knows my lingo and that can keep up in conversation and kind of just keep on riding all day. That was kind of just the best part about our friendship.
1: It seems like the friendships forged in minority skiing and snowboarding are really strong. And that links us back to when this podcast first stepped onto the hill.
0: When I was growing up skiing I had never seen another black skier I just had never seen anyone uh and I had heard this like mythological organization called the national brotherhood of skiers that was and their mission was to get black Americans skiing and get a black American on the national ski team at an Olympic caliber and I was like well that's perfect that's exactly what I want to do but there's no way that this organization exists so then I went to a race in Bend Oregon I'd get on a chairlift and I all of a sudden I saw this black skier, a black racer come down the ski course. I found him in the day lodge, and I like it was kind of like a, a weird movie where everything just stopped when we saw each other in the day lodge. And I was like, huh, there's another one. <laughs> and to me, it was just this moment of like, huh, I didn't know there was more of them. And I kept saying it in the third person, like it or them, <laughs> because I hadn't personalized it yet. But nevertheless, I went over and introduced myself, and I was like, hey, my name's Andre, and his name was um, Thomas Jackson. And he was from Chicago, and he was with the National Brotherhood of Skiers. And I was like, oh, that, that, that organization's real? He's like, oh, yeah, it's awesome. Um, so he, I got his contact information. We became fast friends. Two months later, the National Brotherhood of Skiers was putting together a ski camp for kids of color to go to South America to ski race and train. And that organization believed that you know African-American or Black American skiers of color needed more opportunity to ski race. At that time, I was a pretty accomplished skier. But the idea of going to the South America to ski with other black Americans was super exciting to me because I had never been around that many black Americans in the winter sports. So nevertheless, uh, I met up with this organization in Dallas, Texas, and I saw all these black people coming down the terminal with ski boots on. And it was like a slow motion movie for me because I was like, what? There's like 10 of them. (laughs) And they were all walking with their ski gear and their helmets uh, as we were going to board a flight to South America to ski in Chile. Um, and I had never in my life seen that many black people in with ski boots on. I, and I could say I would like, it would bring tears to my eyes, but it was this, I was more like just super giddy just to, to see other people. Cause I couldn't believe it. Cause I've always been, I mean, I spent almost 15 years my, as the only black skier I'd ever met. So nevertheless, that was, we all became fast friends and that was my like Genesis or inception into my membership and my time and my environment of the National Brotherhood of Skiers. I went to, uh, as you might know, the MBS, as they call it, has these annual summits every year where black Americans from across the country come together to ski race and just enjoy winter sports. I think my first one was in Aspen, or maybe it was Vail. And I think there was almost 4,000 black American skiers with the Brotherhood all there skiing the whole week. They have dancing, they have parties, they have racing, they have cross-country ski events, anything winter sports, they just take over the whole town. And it's kind of overwhelming if you've never seen black American skiers or just that many at once. But having 4,000 black Americans show up in a small ski town is something something you should, anyone should try to go witness. It's fascinating because they'll be from Chicago, all the way to Florida to Texas, um, some are from England and Europe. They come from all over the world to come ski together. I also joined that organization as the national competition director. So I was tasked with finding more black Americans and helping their development within the organization.
1: Because preseason in places like Saas Switzerland, where Brian locked in tricks that are putting him on the global snowboarding map and where Andre earned his USSA skin suit, well, they take a lot of money to get to.
0: Ski racing costs a lot of money. I would say like the national ski team, you know, I would say they probably spend a quarter million on an athlete easily between travel, coaching, expenses and all that. And then it's subsidized, obviously, by the national team. So I would still, even when I was on the national team, have to cover parts of my costs and expenses. And that can range anywhere from like thirty dollars to $90,000 a year. So for me, for instance, and for Brian, it'll be the idea of this increased cost of in May, you go to Mammoth for a couple of weeks and train, and then you come home, and then you leave, and you go to Mount Hood for a couple weeks, and then you come home. Then you go to New Zealand for a couple weeks, and you come home. Then you go to South America for a couple weeks, and then you come home. And then you go to like Hintertux our um, pit stall um and train in the glaciers and then you'd have your first world cup which is sold in so if you think about it those are like five or six events or a week you know almost month-long training events that can take place in the lower in south america or europe on a glacier and that is expensive so it's kind of a bittersweet if your goal is to make the national ski team but you literally don't have enough money to make it right so that like, hey you're qualified but you got to pay for this, this, and this to be on the national team. So the National Brotherhood of Skiers was essentially like, oh, we will subsidize you or we will sponsor you to the national ski team. And I think at the height of our greatest sponsorship, we had Subaru, we had GMC, we had lots of different sponsors. I was probably receiving around $30,000 a year from the National Brotherhood of Skiers. So without those like initial years of my development, you know, because I was a really good ranked skier, but by the end, I started getting better and better. They're like, hey, you can make the national team. We're naming you to the national team which is an accomplishment all by itself, because I was the first able-bodied Black American to do so, I needed financial support nevertheless. And uh, that's where they stepped in and helped as an entire organization.
1: And you made it. And We heard some of the negative reactions that happened when you were wearing the team suit. I don't know, is it too optimistic to think that maybe snow sports in the U.S. changed for the better at that very moment?
0: Yes. I wouldn't say I took it for granted, but I didn't know the implications or the the power a national ski team outfit had because i just was i earned it yes and i was skiing around at a summit with it but when i'd show up at a ski summit i mean i had a level of respect for the uniform and like i appreciated the national team but i would have black americans come up to me in tears like grab my hand and shake my hand and say thank you for what you're doing and the, and it even today it's still overwhelming because i didn't i didn't recognize what i had done because i was like i've been working at this but uh, i get it but having someone who's 70 or 60 years old that's a black american still skiing and saying when i was your age i couldn't ski i wasn't allowed to so to them that was a major accomplishment in their life in the in seeing winter sports change that much and even today i'm like when am i 42 and i, I you still get teary because i i appreciated where i was but the fact that i could impact people and it was like an accomplishment for them to see me there because they had worked so hard to change winter sports to make it more diverse for so anyone could ski so it, It became a pretty powerful moment for me as like, I didn't, I didn't really see myself in that position as a, as a, as a thought leader or someone who could change just by being on the national team. But nevertheless, every time I go to the summit, it was, it it was, it was an emotional roller coaster in a good way to see the impact a black person in a national ski team uniform is skiing around at an event like that.
1: Yeah. Has that kind of support to go to big events like the camp in Sasve changed your outlook, Ryan?
2: I'd say the change for me is the confidence, confidence that I'm gaining. When I saw myself as just a junior writer, another average, it was hard to push myself into maybe trying something new or realizing my talent. But now that I've started to gain my confidence, I pretty much go out there and just do my thing. And that's the best that I could ask for.
0: So I know we're talking about elites, athletics, but the snow industry could do a better job selling lower, farther down on the pipeline.
1: And for both of you, I mean, you're directly impacting that pipeline, whether it's your mission or not, right?
0: If you can show a five-year-old Black American kid that, hey, skiing's fun, it's something you should try, one of those kids out of 100 that might see that marketing are gonna try winter sports. And I think that's the conversion that the winter sports industry, I think, is starting to see. Um, because for every one Andre Horton, there was probably 2,000 black American kids that you would need to get me to the pipeline. Does that make sense? So some people don't understand how this pipeline works. And it's like, it's, for every one of me, there has to be 2,000 black American kids because of statistics and just the data needed for someone to get to the elite level that I did.
1: And you talked about it, finding the LeBron James of snow sports. I'm picturing the opening scene of Space Jam, right? Where a young Jordan can picture himself as the winner. Like who's cultivating that talent?
0: I know of that lives today in this reel is the Phil Jackson of winter sports to get the Michael Jordans on the snow hill. And that's Sean Mallier. I don't know if you've discussed or you know who Sean Mallier is. He's like... I call them the Morpheus of Alpine skiing for Black Americans.
2: Winter for Kids exists to use winter activities as a means to change the life, health, and fitness of youth who traditionally don't have access. We provide healthy meals, all the equipment, all the clothing, mentoring. So life skills, you instill the fires of opportunity. So I just hope that we continue to evolve as a world, as a society, that sports is a means to an end, not an end.
0: He was one that found me and called me, sent me a cell phone in a package. He's like, call me I'm like, on this phone. I'm like, this is my own cell phone? I'm like, yeah, this is your cell phone. You're going to call me? And he single-handedly like, helped me develop as an athlete. And Sean Mallier, he was at one point running in the running for the CEO job at USSA. And he's a black American. He's tall. He's like six foot four. He used to be a marine aviator pilot. Um, he was a stock. He was a high-end CEO. He put away all that, and he bought a ski area out in the East Coast out of foreclosure for, I think, $2 million. Went and found venture capital money and spent an additional $9 million on getting snowmaking put in. And now it's the only ski area in the world that I know of that's a nonprofit that is only for kids. If you're an adult, you cannot ski on the hill. It's only designed for kids. And you can be a kid of any socioeconomic background and come and ski there, and you get a meal, you get a coach, and you get rental equipment. To ski, and I think there's been like thirty thousand kids that have gone through there. And since it's in New Jersey, you get kids from all backgrounds getting there. And that just that idea will be the impetus to get the LeBron James, because we have to have a bigger funnel. So if you have thirty thousand kids of different backgrounds going through, as I talked earlier, like it might take two thousand Black American kids to have one Andre Horton. He's already put thirty thousand kids through a winter sport activity. So that means statistically, it's just a matter of time. And guaranteeing a spot on the U.S. Olympic 500-meter team, the first black woman to qualify for a U.S. Olympic long-track speed skating spot. History made here in Milwaukee tonight.
1: Just a matter of time. And the time has nearly come for the 2022 Winter Games. What do you want people who are watching skiing or watching snowboarding in February to think when it comes to diversity,
2: I'm usually less focused on the race of the people that are, you
1: know, competing
2: and doing their thing. I'm more concerned on, you know, just the awesome things that are going on and what everybody's up to, who's going to win, you know, that kind of thing.
0: But there's still going to be someone at the Olympics from Belarus who's going to be ski racing. There's still going to be a guy from Cuba who's going to be there. And I think we forget that we, we focus on the gold medal rounds. But if you look at YouTube a month after the Olympics, you'll see footage of some guy just giving his all, and he might be, <laughs> he might be last. But it is so cool to see their face when they finish, and I think that's the Olympic spirit. Sometimes we lose, and I, I appreciate NBC too because sometimes they will show you know highlights of all these people from different countries who they've they have struggled their whole life and they have made it and they finally get to the Olympics. And it's cool to see people recognize their dream at the Olympics, regardless if they win or lose. That's the best part about the Olympics.
1: That is the best part of skiing, right? You can do it for your country, for representation of people like you, and you can do it for yourself all at once.
0: I guess I have I have never had a day of skiing that didn't impact my life. And I've never interacted with a sport that didn't have a direct impact on my life. And people are like, oh, I mean, negative? Like, it's raining outside. like, no. Like, I've never had a day of skiing that didn't change my perspective or make me more joyful or thankful. Is that you're in the mountains. It's peaceful. It's serene. And we live in a busy, noisy environment sometimes. We're all working.
1: Noise, like unwanted questions or statements.
0: People will say things to me that I think most people would probably say, I was kind of racist. But I I don't look at it that way. I look at it as I'm like a walking educational device (laughs) or a person because people will ask me when I'm on a chairlift, you know, like, what's it like being black and skiing? I'm like, well, it's no different than you. Gravity doesn't discriminate. That's what I always tell people. Uh, (laughs) I'm going to wreck just as good as you are if we're not careful. Um, uh, But we can really enjoy the sport uh, because it doesn't discriminate.
1: We can really enjoy the sport. All of us. After all, there are no outsiders outside that's it for this week's episode of the podium follow now wherever you're currently listening to get automatic downloads for more olympic content ahead of the 2022 winter games check out nbcolympics.com and starting february 4th tune into the networks of nbc